Hello, welcome to the Positive Energy Podcast. I'm your host, Ian T.D. Thompson. The Positive Energy Podcast is the official podcast of the University of Ottawa's Positive Energy Initiative. The initiative seeks to strengthen public confidence in Canadian energy policy, regulation, and decision-making through evidence-based research and analysis, engagement, and recommendations for action. Today on the program, we are talking with Nick Nanos, Chair and CEO of Nanos Research, as well as Chair of the Advisory Council for the Positive Energy Initiative. Recently, Nanos Research and Positive Energy engaged in two surveys examining the views of both the general Canadian public and energy leaders on climate and energy policy. This work provides a glimpse into opinions surrounding Canada's performance on energy and environment initiatives, energy policy trade-offs and preferences, and the roles and responsibilities of Canada's institutions. Additionally, the two reports discern where there is consensus and where there is polarization among those surveyed. To get more to the details of these two reports, as well as what this means for Canada's energy future, Nick Nanos joins us on phone to talk more about the work. Nick Nanos is the chair and CEO of Nanos Research, as well as senior fellow of the Positive Energy Initiative. Mr. Nanos, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, Ed. Before we get talking about the, the details of the reports, would you be able to describe to the listeners the history between Nanos Research and Positive Energy and when the first surveys on this topic were conducted? Yeah, you know, the thing is, is that uh, Nanos Research has very uh, proudly been a partner with Positive Energy since day one. Ever since the start of the Positive Energy Initiative, we've been uh, a partner and collaborator, and that includes contributing part of the cost of the research and, uh, and conducting the research. And we've enjoyed doing... Lots of deep data dives, and I think the I think one of the key takeaways here is that what we're seeing is 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 a particular issue when it comes to the intersection of the environment and energy that is of particular interest to Canadians because we know that the energy sector is an important part of the Canadian economy, and at the same time we have what I'll say environmental aspirations. So so this has been a a great project because, you know, what we're talking about is trying to unpack a very complex situation that people really care about. And, you know, I would say, quite frankly, cross-pressured because we want to have a strong economy. And at the same time, we want to make sure that we have the type of environment that is sustainable and ready and has a certain level of stewardship for future generations of Canadians. I'm really glad you mentioned that. Just the idea that this is a very complex subject. It has a very complex history, you could even say, with Canada, insofar as what our national identity actually means. Yeah, and, you know, and I think one of the benefits of positive energy is kind of, it's become a bit of a convening space for Canadians and for top thinkers in the environment and energy to try to square the circle, so to speak, because, you know, the sad part is, you know, if you read the news many times, the, there tends to be a characterization of black and white issues, right, that you either have to be for the, if you're for the environment, you can't support uh, things like pipelines. And if you support pipelines, that you're completely insensitive to environmental aspirations. And I think the big power that positive energy brings to the table is the fact that it is an academic independent institution, which means it's grounded at the University of Ottawa, and that it is convening people across not just one sector, but multiple sectors and different levels of government. You know, one of the things we learned at the very beginning of the research 
was kind of an interesting tidbit on, you know, which types of organizations have the greatest credibility in advancing solutions. And, you know, when we do the surveys, people don't know. When we ask Canadians, they don't know that the survey is done for the University of Ottawa or Positive Energy. That's all they know is that we're doing a survey on energy and environmental issues. And one of the things that we learned at the very beginning in, in kind of the independent blind research that we did was that academia has a significant level of credibility as a place to advance solutions on what I'll say environmental and energy issues that they're more likely to trust academia and academics and universities compared to governments, compared to industry association, compared to corporations. And this is why the convening power of positive energy is so important and, and kind of what I'll say the unique convening power in place that universities and academics have because, let's face it, this is not about any kind of agenda. This is just about unpacking what Canadians think, talking to experts, and trying to chart some sort of evidence-based path forward on this very difficult issue. What I found interesting when going through the survey research was that uh, most Canadians think that Canada is doing a bad job when it comes to building public confidence in energy decision-making. And I think that leaves a very important place for an initiative like the Positive Energy Initiative, whose mandate is precisely that, figure out solutions to tackle that specific problem. I just want to kind of now jump a little bit more into the general population survey, because yep. as you said, the point of, of these surveys is just, it doesn't really have a modus operandi. It has just, what are Canadians thinking about at this point in time? Can you give the listeners a quick rundown, maybe just on the, on the topics, as well as the methodology that was used for the general population survey on uh, examining climate and energy matters? Sure. Well, that was a hybrid telephone online survey of 1,000 Canadians. We did the survey in late August, early September. So it's a random survey, and it's accurate 3.1 percentage points, 19 times out of 20. So the way the methodology works is we recruit people by telephone, but that they actually, using random digit dialing of land and cell line, and they do the survey uh, online. And we find that to be a particularly robust way to do this because we are able to recruit younger people to do the survey because we're recruiting by using cell lines, cell phone numbers, and at the same time we get to kind of benefit from the online platform. But the long and the short on the general population survey that uh, was just recently done and released by Positive Energy and Nanos is, like you say, uh, Canadians are still more likely to say that Canada is doing a poor job rather than a good job on energy issues, and it speaks to the fact that there's a significant opportunity for improvement. And, you know, I, I think there's a certain level of, of frustration in terms of both Canada's environmental agenda and also our energy and uh, kind of resource sector that, you know, I think there's a bit of a, a backdrop that people just feel that there's been so much bickering and division and fighting that we just can't get things done. And when I say can't get things done, I think just generally whether it comes to realizing our environmental aspirations and also figuring out how does our resource sector fit into not just our economy, but fit into what our aspirations are on an environmental uh, level. I think one of the other things that really jumped out for me was the view that the national interest is actually more important than local, provincial, or indigenous interests. And you know, the thing is, is what, what we've seen, at least, is that for many of these projects, 
there's been a fixation and focus on on local interests, whatever they might be, and people wanting to respect local interests. And I think that's a very valid uh, view. But I think one of the big discussion points that needs to happen is how do we reconcile respecting local interests, indigenous interests, provincial interests, and so forth, with the national interest. And I think some might argue that if we always had a local interest overriding the broader interest of uh, Canadians, that a lot of things wouldn't be done. You know, like say, for example, if a community wanted to build a hospital and people in the community didn't want the traffic from the hospital, you'd say, okay, what can we do to kind of manage those concerns that people have about the project? But the reality is, is that we still need to build a hospital. And I think for some of these energy projects, I think Canadians would expect a robust debate on, is this really in the national interest? And then if it is in the national interest, have we done everything feasibly possible to reconcile and speak to local concerns, right? So that we're not steamrolling or bulldozing projects, but that we can kind of balance the national interest with local interest. So I thought that was a really big, and you know, I, I'm not sure if we talk about this enough on what is, and you know, I think this also has to do with, you know, what is the national interest and what would constitute a project that would be in the national interest. You know, I think if you go back into the history books, the St. Lawrence Seaway, before it was built, was deemed to be in the national interest, and they flooded towns, like they dislocated people, and I'm not here to defend that decision. I'm not saying that it was done properly, but, you know, that's an example of the old paradigm where the national interest basically steamrolled, and I don't think that's where Canadians want to go. However, I think they do want to see, let's talk about something, and if a project does not meet the national interest, then maybe it has a different status when it comes to uh, the importance of local opinions. So I thought that was quite interesting, and, you know, it speaks to the importance of the federal government and provincial governments, maybe we need a vehicle where the provincial where the federal government and provincial governments have some sort of agreement on what does constitute something that is in the national interest, and then to figure out how do we reconcile that or kind of have that as compatible as possible and respectful as possible with local interests. Yeah, I'm really glad that you mentioned that because that was a key takeaway when I read through it. It's just this idea that Canadians want an environmental policy that follows in the national interest. And it sometimes can come out the cost of the views of local residents, the views of people in the respective province, or in some cases, indigenous rights. Um, To keep on this point, what does this mean for the Federation? Is our Federation working the way it's supposed to be working? These are the questions that are going through my head when I'm seeing uh, this trade-off, honestly. Yeah, the sad part about our Federation is that it was invented in the time of the steam engine. And we're no longer in the time of the steam engine. And, you know, to put this into context, and why don't we just use the example of the St. Lawrence Seaway? So one of the reasons why that's not acceptable is not just that paradigm wasn't acceptable. The outcome, we understood why we needed the outcome and the process. But there was no kind of respect for kind of local interests. And I think in the research that we've done on behalf of positive energy, what comes out clear is that if a community or local interests are going to be the hosts, I'll call them the hosts for an energy project, what's in it for them? To expect a community to just kind of roll over and have an energy project or any kind of big project and not to have any kind of benefit 
or any kind of recognition of being the host, I do not think is acceptable. And I think, you know, when we talk about respect for local interests, I think it isn't just kind of going through the process of having a consultation and listening to concerns and adapting the project to be the least invasive as possible while still being commercially viable. I think the other thing has to be that if a community is needed to be a host for something, what's in it for them, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? Like, And if a community is going to be a host for something and that energy project might devalue real estate, then you have to deal with that particular situation head on. And, you know, I think that's probably where the Federation could probably do a better job so that for communities, and we have to realize there are communities that are willing hosts and communities that are unsure about being hosts for big energy projects because it works both ways. There are communities that are happy to kind of benefit from the jobs and the infrastructure that might come with an energy project, and that there are others where it's much more divisive. But I think the key takeaway is, regardless of whether there's support or concerns about a particular energy project, I think one of the things that has to be in it is kind of like, what's in it for them? Because you can't expect a local community to completely sacrifice itself, I would say, for the uh, for the national interest. Mm-hmm. It sounds like the Federation needs pragmatic, realistic partnerships at the local level and not just rhetorical support. On a side note, I think this is an interesting idea because we had Michael Cleland on the podcast a number of weeks ago, and he's talking about this idea of the role of climate energy policy and how the importance of local institutions might actually grow over time. So to see in your survey work people wishing to take the national interest over the local institutions versus the fact that the local institutions might have a growing level of importance over time uh, seems to be uh, seems to be two different ideas that might that are constantly coming to a head. But you know the thing is is that in our research at least there's you know an emerging consensus on the need for more partnerships just generally partnerships with local communities, partnerships with indigenous communities and to and I think I think there just needs to be a rethink on local communities and indigenous interests and stuff like that as partners, not just as not just as stakeholders to manage, but as as real partners. And then if they're considered to be real partners with real interests at the table that are completely valid and important, then that changes the dynamic. And any kind of partnership, there's a give and take. Mm-hmm. It's not a take it or leave it but that there's a bit of a back and forth and a lot more, uh, a lot more flexibility uh, when it comes to that relationship. So I want to talk a little bit more about the general population survey and some of the findings. You talked a little bit about this growing need for the national interests over local institutions. What were the topics that were found to have the most consensus among the public outside of this national interest idea? Were there specific policies that the general public support? Any big surprises or growing areas of consensus? Well, if you kind of think of the world in a binary sense, one of the key dividing lines right across all of the things that we tested when it came to polarization was as soon as you introduce the element of there being less economic development as a result of a decision, that's when in the positive energy nanostata there was the greatest level of polarization. So it's kind of like even when we tested on stuff like they thought about reducing oil and gas production, even if there's less economic development, 
Canadians were divided on that. Even they're even divided on, you know, meeting climate commitments if there is less economic development. And so as soon as you introduce loss of jobs, why don't we just put it that way? If as soon as we introduce loss of jobs or potential weakening of the economy, the opinions were much more polarized between those that were in favor and against a whole different kind of slew of scenarios. You know, when it came to the future, right? and investing in more energy infrastructure like windmills, solar farms in communities, there is a significant level of consensus. Also a lot of consensus when it came to the Canadian governments having an energy accord with Indigenous peoples to reduce conflict. A lot of consensus when it comes to growth in the uh, renewable uh, energy sector. Also a consensus that Canada's oil and gas sector can play an important long-term role if it operates in an environmentally responsible way. So, you know, what was interesting is is that Canadians were very pragmatic. It's kind of like, it's not as if they were openly hostile to the oil and gas sector. And you might think that when if you look on social media. The reality is, is that if there is a sense that the oil and gas sector kind of operated in an environmentally responsible way or within our environmental aspirations, the significant proportion of Canadians would not have a problem in them playing an important role in our economy. So there are lots of consensus items, but you know the one thing that we, you know, have to remember is that as soon as you introduce the concept of weakening or people worried about the economy being weaker, people worried about actually losing jobs, that it becomes much more of a mixed bag and the views become a little more polarized than they do on basically a swath of, of all the other issues. I think that was what was so great about the general population survey was the fact that you did introduce those trade-offs. It wasn't just, do you support X? It was like, do you support X if it means this? Yeah. If it means tax revenues to governments decreasing, energy price increases, as you said, less economic development in Canada being kind of the big one where there is that dividing line. I was just wondering if you could explain a little bit further, in your view, why is it important to gauge Canadians' thoughts on these trade-offs and these policy considerations? Yeah, because this is the trap that many research initiatives fall into. You know, it's kind of like the, the traditional one is, do you want your taxes to go down? You know, to ask the question, would you like your taxes <laughs> to go down? And everybody says, 80% of Canadians said, of course I'd like my taxes to go down, but they're not. The problem with that particular question is that it's incomplete. It doesn't introduce the fact that there are trade-offs. So then, you know, to properly do this, it would be like, would, would you like less health care? You know, would you like to spend less money in schools? Would you like to have a longer waiting line? And that's when you get into real choices. And the beauty behind the Nanos Positive Energy Study is that we introduced trade-offs on every single element. And I think the trade-offs that we learned about is that People are uh, willing to pay a little more. They're okay with it in terms of their cost of living. They're willing to kind of have the government potentially have a little less revenue. But those trade-offs stop if you lose a job. And this is where for anyone that's interested in advancing solutions in this, maybe that's kind of the key thing that, that people want to hear about, right? They want to hear about how does any project that fits within our environmental aspirations, how does it make Canada a stronger place? How does it make our economy stronger? Does it put jobs at risk or not at risk? And how does it fit into the long-term plan? You know, maybe one of the other, if we were to kind of distill all the data that we have, 
I would probably expect that one of the things that would come through is Canadians' concern about short-termism, right? It's all about the short term, right? What can we do to do get this particular project? But no one, if we want Canadians to accept energy projects and to kind of try to advance our environmental aspirations, we have to have some sort of long-term vision. Whenever I've seen the data, if you explain the sacrifices that need to be made for the future sustainability of our country from an environmental point of view and from an economic point of view, you know, we should give Canadians the credit that they're probably willing to make those sacrifices if it's explained to them that there's a plan. But right now, when we look at the data, people don't think we have a plan. They don't think we do a good job. They think that things are very short-term. And big surprise when governments try to advance the agenda that there's pushback because that's all it looks like is to, pardon the expression, it looks like a goat rodeo, right, (laughs) where there's like the provinces fighting the feds and then you have local interests fighting proponents of projects and it's just a complete for average canadians that you know want to realize their environmental aspirations but don't necessarily want to jeopardize jobs Mm -hmm. it just looks completely dysfunctional so maybe the key takeaway here is where's the long-term vision in the ideal world and you know if we're doing Ian, I don't know if you do fantasy politics very often, but (laughs) some people do fantasy Mm -hmm. politics. In the ideal world, there would be a bipartisan or nonpartisan understanding at the federal level and in Canada about what our environmental aspirations are and how we reconcile that with our economic needs and to be economically strong so that if a government changed, we would still be on the same plan. That would probably be the ideal world because then Canadians would have confidence that we'd have the environment that we want and be able to realize our environmental goals, but that at the same time, it would not, those, those aspirations would not significantly undermine the viability and strength of the Canadian economy. I'm thinking of that idea that you mentioned, the idea of short-termism, and Canadians want that a little bit more of a long-term vision. It's almost like they're trying to get out of the weeds and they're trying to see the forest. And I find that to be really interesting just because when you think of just the lifespan of a politician, they have a term of about four years if it's a majority. You know, we're now in a minority situation, so who knows when uh, the next election will be. I guess with that in mind, I I do want to talk a little bit about the election, just because this survey came out prior to the federal election. How might the then upcoming federal election affected Canadians' opinions on energy and climate policy at the time of the polling? Not really at all. Okay. Because we weren't really testing. There were no partisan questions Okay. Okay. Uh, in our study. I would say that a lot of these views on the trade-offs aren't really necessarily time and place specific. So because of the content of what we did and the fact that we did not examine partisanship and we did not introduce that content. If we'd introduced that content, it would have had a significant influence. But because we didn't introduce any of the partisan content in what we were doing, there's no real, uh, there was no real impact. And plus, because we had it done before the election, if this was done during the election, there could have been a bit of a, one could argue, potentially a contamination effect based on what was discussed. But being done before the election and not having any kind of partisan angle to it and, you know, the, it, when we talk about polarization in our context, it's polarization based on trade-offs. 
It's not polarization based on support or opposition to different things. So it's a different kind of different cat, so to speak, data cat than some of the other stuff that's out there. To provide you just the, an anecdote, I interviewed Stephen Byrd and Eric LaChapelle on their survey, and that was yeah. a significant caveat, is the fact that their survey work took into account party affiliation, as well as the fact that it was during the election as well. So that had to be a consideration when you were looking at the data. So that's interesting to see a little bit of the difference between their survey work and the general population survey work. Yeah. And, you know, in fairness, that was the purpose of their survey. Oh, exactly. Exactly. So, so you know, they did exactly what they were supposed to do. But uh, for us, that was separate. Ours was almost more kind of like a policy consumer study, right, with trade-offs. And so that would be the difference between our study and the study that Eric and Stephen did. Yeah, that's helpful to know, I'm sure, for the listeners when they're seeing the work produced by Nanos Research and Positive Energy versus the work produced by Stephen and Eric. So I just want to touch a little bit more on the elite expert survey. Uh, yeah. So this was a survey conducted about 100 Canadian energy experts in late September, early October. Can you explain to the listeners a little bit of the key takeaways that we can draw from the results of that survey and kind of the consensus among elite experts? Yeah. So, And to put this into context, this is a different kind of initiative where people are not randomly selected. Right. In the other survey, the GenPOP survey, there's random selection, so no one can volunteer. In this particular case, what we did was collaborated with the positive energy folks at the University of Ottawa and developed, basically created a universe of key informants and key stakeholders and experts that included a whole variety of people, including public policy people, industry people, advocates, all that kind of stuff, uh, people in the, from the environmental sector. So it's a different kind of initiative. And what we found is actually, it's interesting, you know, we were talking about long-term versus short-term. You know, when we talk about statements, and we tested on a series of statements to understand the directionality of the views. And, you know, the two statements that had the highest level of consensus make a lot of sense when you think of the GenPOP. And those were that the federal government needs to develop a long-term vision, even if provinces don't agree with it, and that we need to invest tax dollars in retraining workers who may lose their jobs as a result of climate change. So it's kind of interesting when you think of what people are concerned about and what our environmental and energy thought leaders think. They're actually on the same page in terms of what we need to do. There's a high level of consensus among the, I'll call it the thought leaders, on a whole range of things, including the perception that, you know, we need a carbon tax that applies across the country and that the federal government has a role. We need to focus more on renewable energy, all that kind of stuff. There was one element that actually was not a consensus element among the thought leaders, and that had to do with the future of oil and gas production and consumption in Canada, and that on the future, they were actually divided in terms of what I'll say, I'll call it a complete phase-out of oil and gas production and consumption in Canada. So this is, and you know, perhaps this is the other kind of tension point. So it's not just directional in terms of our environmental aspirations. The other thing is, okay, even for people that believe that we should be having less carbon in our economy. And there might be a, a lot of agreement in terms of less carbon than now. But then the, the long-term question is, 
what is oil and gas and what is carbon, what does that look like 100 years from now? Is it zero? Is zero feasible? Is it desirable? No one knows that. But kind of like this goes back to my comment about the long-term vision. As opposed to kind of saying that there's no future for oil and gas at all and no future for carbon, maybe there needs to be a discussion on it's going to be less, it's probably going to be a lot less than it has been in the past, but then let's have an honest discussion on what it could be. So, and, you know, I think part of the challenge is that for some stakeholders and and forces out there, it could be argued that they're creating unrealistic expectations in terms of, is there such a thing as a zero carbon economy? And perhaps in the future, there will be technology that might create the conditions for that, but that technology does not exist now. So then the question is, what is the stewardship and kind of future for oil and gas look like based on the direction that it seems many Canadians want things to go in, in terms of diminishing what I'll say kind of carbon's impact on the environment. And, you know, and, and some of the other research that we've done on the energy file, because I do work with the Wilson Center in Washington, D.C., Canadians are actually very pragmatic and they're agnostic on energy sources. And as long as energy sources fit within environmental aspirations, they're okay with it. If they don't fit within our environmental aspirations, then that's when they are very uncomfortable with those energy choices. And maybe that's the way we should be looking at things. That's really interesting, just the idea that Canadians are actually energy agnostic. They don't necessarily have a preference over one or the other. Yeah, as as they're energy agnostic. They are energy agnostic, but they're not environmentally agnostic. They still want to they still want to protect the environment, to have a healthy, sustainable environment. So they're not agnostic on that front. So, you know, if you're in the energy sector, maybe one of the key messages from this is what can you do to have your sector fit within the environmental aspirations of Canadians? If you can somehow figure that out then Canadians are more likely to be accepting of what you have to do. However, if you cannot fit into Canada's environmental aspirations, you're going to have resistance from people. Yeah, and it sounds like that question that the elites were a little bit unsure about was precisely what you're saying, is that the oil and gas kind of phase out or this new technology, the technology doesn't necessarily exist at this point about how it might be able to fit a little bit more carefully into our environmental goals. Is that a correct way of interpreting it? Yeah, yeah. I think so. And, you know, and we've done research in this area. And, you know, I, I remember, you know, one of the things that came through, you know, would be the view, just to kind of paraphrase my own research, is that we can put a person on the moon. Can't we kind of use technology to kind of figure out how we can realize our environmental aspirations? And there's a lot more confidence in technology finding a solution rather than public policy <laughs> finding a solution on this. And, you know, I think that's, you know, if there was a gauntlet that someone could throw down to the energy sector, it would be basically, hey, you should be doing R&D on how you can fit into the environmental aspirations of Canadians. Because if you can't, then Canadians are not going to be supportive of what you're doing. So if you can fit within our environmental aspirations, then people will be more accepting of the types of projects that you need to happen from a long-term perspective. And with that in mind, if we are talking about new technologies, there's been a recent development in the last 
couple weeks. So at the end of 2019, the premiers of Ontario, New Brunswick, and Saskatchewan pledged to work together to develop and utilize these small modular nuclear reactors as kind of a non-emitting energy source to tackle climate change. How does this development fit in with what you're saying? Because one of the aspects I found interesting in terms of the energy expert survey was kind of in support of using nuclear energy as one of the best ways of tackling climate change. Yeah, I think, well, and we have to be careful in some of the words, whether we say support or open or accepting, because I think support implies a certain level of enthusiasm when the reality is the people are open and accepting of proposals like that. You know, I think this falls into, you know, if there was another broader theme that's out there when it comes to this issue is that average citizens are suspicious of governments that make bold and big bets to say, this is the future, right? And then I'll just put insert, right? Whatever. And I won't insert anything so as not to annoy or repel any of your listeners. But this goes into the whole idea of an energy portfolio, that as opposed to governments picking one or two big winners in terms of energy sources, you know, I think for many Canadians, they would probably be more accepting of a portfolio situation where there are different types of energy sources. Some of these energy sources, such as renewables, Canadians want more of and would like to see that part of the portfolio grow and that they are open to a, a portfolio that probably makes a little more sense from an operational point of view and, and small nuclear kind of fits into that kind of portfolio attitude because, you know, the thing is, is that for anyone that knows anything about the energy sector, you need a combination of energy sources, some of which need to be stable, kind of foundational, that when the energy is needed, it will be there, and others which are variable. And many of those variable ones are things like wind energy, which can be very effective, but can be variable. And, you know, whenever any politician says that they have the solution and it should be all this or we're making a big bet in another area, you know, I, I would hazard to say that many citizens kind of roll their eyes whenever they hear something like that. So I think when we hear about this small modular nuclear, I think that has a role within the concept of an energy portfolio. And then this goes back to kind of the long-term strategy. What's the long-term vision for renewables in the energy portfolio and how do they grow, right? How does Canada create the context for these renewables to grow? Because there is support for that, and people see that as aligned with environmental aspirations. How do different kind of base sources, including carbon, fit into, and what is their role in the energy portfolio in the long term? And to just think of it, and for us all to think of it in practical terms, that you know, average Canadians would probably kind of better connect with. What I'm hearing, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's almost like with the announcement of the small modular reactors, it sounds like you're seeing this more as this is just one chapter to the whole book, to the whole portfolio, yeah. rather yeah. than here is the simplified solution for it, uh, yeah. for all of climate change. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think that's probably the best way to look at it and, and to portray it as this is part of a long-term sustainable solution that meets our economic needs, our energy needs, and our environmental aspirations, right? And if it ticks all those boxes, then it should be part of the portfolio and kind of part of our future path forward. But that at the same time, that doesn't mean that we can't deal with the tougher problem. I shouldn't say problem, with the tougher question of 
how does carbon fit into our portfolio? And if carbon is at this level today, where will it be in the future? And to have that tougher conversation related to that just because of the views related to that sector. So, Nick, I want to kind of switch directions a little bit and just talk about the next steps of this survey work. What are the next sort of important questions that might need to be addressed in terms of the partnership with Nanos Research and Positive Energy, or what might be added or taken into consideration for future surveys? Yeah, I would say a number of things. So first of all, the power of the survey that we have is that it's a tracking survey. So we're tracking views over time. So that tracking element is going to be important because what it does is it allows us to understand the direction of view. So there's the tracking element. I would say some of the other things that need to be unpacked is when we say or when Canadians say that it's okay for national interests to be a significant fact when they kind of run up against local and indigenous interests, just what does that mean, right? And to unpack basically to take you know what we've taken is some macro level trade-offs which is really what this study was i think it would be really cool if positive energy and nanos could work together to start identifying micro level trade-offs at the local level because it's easy to say that here's what the trade-off should be between the national interests and local interests it's another thing to unpack that specifically when it comes to, you know, local jobs, when it comes to revenue sharing, when it comes to the development of the project, the physical development of the project or the proposed initiative period. And so I think we've got a good grip on the macro level trade-offs. I think it would be really cool if in 2020 we started going into the micro level because those will be more practical in terms of charting a path forward. So if you think of the study that we've just done, basically we've mapped out the macro trade-offs and the, I'll say the agreement in principle on the big direction. And there are a lot of consensus points. Now we have to get into the micro level trade-offs that are kind of more of the nuts and bolts of the practicality of having a project move forward, if it does move forward at all, or the conditions under which a project should not move forward, because I think that's also a valid that's also a valid thing to have on the table. And then the other thing, at least in our research, would be to unpack the two divisive issues where there was no consensus. The one issue relates to the intersection with less economic development in Canada, and to explore that more. And that came out in the general population survey. And then the other divisive issue, which came out in the key stakeholder or expert survey that we did, which is what is the future of oil and gas from a long-term perspective? And to have an honest discussion and unpacking of that. If we could get into the micro trade-offs, concerns that Canadians have about the impact on the economy when it comes to this issue, and a real heart-to-heart exploration and uncovering of what is the future of oil and gas, those three things would be a significant contribution to the body of knowledge and kind of the public policy discussion when it comes to environmental issues and its intersection with energy priorities. Yeah, Nick, I got to say those are quite fascinating questions that I think that are very much worth exploring. Nick, I'm all out of questions on my end, but Are there any additional comments or thoughts you would like to add regarding the survey work or potentially how the survey work might 
how decision makers might wish to utilize what they see in survey work? Well, like any academic or researcher, that's all we want is for people to use the information and as a resource. And I think when we look at the research that Nanos has done, the research that Eric and Stephen have done on partisanship and polarization, I think it together it provides a real context, not just on public policy and nuts and bolts, but also on the traps and pitfalls to avoid so that when communities, public policymakers, elected officials, proponents, advocacy groups step into this space, that they step into the space with their eyes wide open. That would be kind of the key message that I would have from the research. And then to be, you know, we have to be respectful of the direction that at least Canadians want to go in on this front. And we also have to be respectful of the concerns that they have. And, you know, I think looking at the data, those would be the key things that I would take away from this. This is a great project to work on. It's among the more important projects that I'm personally working on, and I'm very happy to be part of the Positive Energy team. And that's all we hope is that Canadians and stakeholders and everyone that has an interest in this dig into the data to try to make better informed decisions. Mm-hmm. Based on evidence to improve the public confidence and energy decision making. Yeah, exactly. Of Absolutely. Nick, thanks so much for your time, for talking with me regarding both the the general population survey and the energy expert survey. It is terrific work, and I do think it's important for decision makers or even for just Canadians interested in energy policy to look through them and see where everyone sits with these issues. But again, thank you so much for your time, and uh, good luck with the rest of the work with Positive Energy. It was fun, and we'll chat again, I'm sure for sure. You've been listening to the Positive Energy Podcast. For more information on the survey work discussed, please visit the Positive Energy website. Today's episode was produced by myself, Ian T.D. Thompson.